Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Ryan Law, Vice President of Content at Animals. Ryan, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, really looking forward to chatting with you. Likewise. I've been a fan of, of Animals for a long time. My co-founder and I both have been reading the blog for years, digging into all things content marketing. And you posted on Twitter or LinkedIn, I forget where it was, like, hey, I'm looking to go on some more podcasts. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, I got a message this guy and track him down. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, that made me so happy then having you respond to that. It's uh, it occurred to me I could just ask people to see if they want to chat. And actually some people did, which is really cool. What a concept. What a concept. I always open these episodes by going back to the beginning. I'd love to just kind of get an understanding of like, how has your career journey kind of progressed to where you're at today with animals? Kind of what you've done and, and how it shaped you in, into how you think about content marketing today and, and ultimately what you do at animals. Yeah, happy to. I've basically been doing some variation of the thing I do now <laughs> since I was at university. Like, basically, I remember at university, I was studying economics and tending bar to pay my way through university, doing a terrible job with the course, with the job, everything. And I just thought there has to be like a better way of making ends meet. And a friend of mine recommended I check out some freelance blogging sites. This was like 12 years ago, and this was the kind of thing where you'd write the world's worst, spammiest content, like reviewing bourbon and hair curling tongs and stuff, and you'd make $3 per article. But I did a few like blog posts through that, and I realized, yeah, you could actually make money with writing, which was a thing I was good at, a thing I enjoyed. Yeah. And I finished university, all my friends were offered to finance. I thought that sounded like a terrible idea. So I just kept that the freelancing, basically just sat in my parents' room straight out of university for about three years straight, just desperately trying to write blog posts for people. Yeah. Eventually joined like a marketing agency through that because it was way less hassle to work with one marketing agency instead of like 10 solopreneurs. Yeah. And I've basically, yeah, been working with and in agencies ever since, including a brief stint uh, co-founding my own agency as well. Wow. I mean, it's funny. The more I talk to different marketers, it always goes back to, yeah, I started out blogging about weird things. That's like a, a common theme, whether it's booze, hair products, like whatever the thing. It seems like a lot of people have kind of got their start and they're like, yeah, the, the internet was this thing I was interested in. It got really weird for a second. And then, you know, now I'm here and 10 years later, and now I, you know, work on content for this company or this company or this company. Yeah, totally. I mean, content today is like a really mature, respected industry, but 10 years ago is this nascent weird thing. You had to spend all your time persuading people that it was worthwhile. Yeah. And it was generally like the black hat SEOs that were the most interested in it to get yeah. started with. So all the gambling niches and all the kind of poker sites and all that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. learned a lot through that experience, but I also learned a lot about what I didn't want to do and what I thought was bad about content marketing. And that kind of plays into what we do at Animals Today, where we generally try and leave the internet in a slightly better state than when we found it, which I yeah. think is a, a good thing to aspire to. Well, I want to kind of dig into that. And this is a very broad question, but like the word content marketing, what, is, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to the team at Animals? I feel like that word content marketing has just been thrown around and, and, you know, kind of slapped onto different things. And yeah, like when you think about content marketing and animals and, and kind of state of the union, what comes to mind? Yeah, that is a great question. I'm not even sure I have a particularly succinct answer because the thing we've always focused on is like long form written content. And yeah. I think 
that has historically been the dominant form of content marketing, mainly because of SEO, basically. Yeah. The unique thing about SEO is obviously you publish a blog post once and it generates compounding traffic. Therefore, the amount you spend on that blog post becomes effectively cheaper and cheaper with every passing month. Yeah. And there aren't many other like forms of marketing or even content that do that. So a lot of content marketing has just been SEO historically. Yeah. That's definitely changing today. Um, I get a lot of pushback from people that say, you know, hey, man, it's not just writing, you know podcasts and media publications and going on TikTok and video content and all kinds of things. I guess the aspect of this that I think is most interesting and most relevant today is that people are more willing to, I guess, front load content marketing at an earlier stage of the buying process. Mm -hmm. So I think historically, like content marketing, you were basically solving problems, answering search queries. Yep. And we're seeing a bit of a movement now around like media marketing and the idea being that if a bunch of people are already answering those questions and solving those problems, why not go a step earlier in the buying process and just try and entertain people and just get into their heads through that mechanism? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we basically do long form written content, but there's this huge expansion of what content marketing means today, I think. Yeah. And, and I feel like it's going through a lot of change with the platforms, right? Like to your point, you brought up TikTok, you brought that like YouTube is kind of incentivizing maybe more longer form content where people are spending time, whereas TikTok is incentivizing shorter pieces of content, but longer time spent on the app consuming shorter pieces of content. Like it is, I'll just call it a mess. It's a mess out there for content marketers or for marketers in general to be like, I know I have to create content. Where should I be creating content? What should I be creating? Because for every blog post that says short form video is the future, there's another blog post that's saying, nope, long form YouTube video or long form blog content or you know, really rich in-depth articles. It is kind of this, you know, there's so many different options out there. And, and we see this all the time with our clients where they're just like, I know I need to create content, but what is it? Yeah. I find that interesting actually, because um, you do almost see cycles of specialism followed by generalism in terms of like marketing skill sets. And, yeah. you know, I, I got very far in my career by being a great writer and focusing on purely written content. But even in the work I do at Animals, mm -hmm. there is so much I've had to add to my skill set to even do a good job of the written stuff because yeah. I'm distributing it on social and spending a bunch of time there. I'm repurposing it into other formats, holding events and webinars that talk about the content we've written. There's this huge, yeah, like extra set of skills that people require to be a good content marketer today. So yeah. It is a little bit of a mess in some cases, I think. Yeah. I think back to, you know, there was that phrase, however many years ago, content is king. And, but then, you know, there's kind of been counter arguments to that where it's like, everyone has to make great content now. And distribution is actually the name of the game. Like, like just because you make something great doesn't mean that it's going to pop off. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like to your point, there, there are so many great writers out there. My background is video production. So when I got into video production, it was really when DSLR started taking off for video. So like the 5D Mark II came out. So all of a sudden, everyone with, you know, a thousand dollar camera was like a cinematographer and like had this like really artistic. And we, you know, that's, I think about like the, uh, what's that guy's name? Philip Bloom was like the British guy who he was a camera guy and like a broadcast camera guy. And then all of a sudden he's getting into these like artistic films. Vimeo was kind of up on the rise and you're starting to see ba basically the, you know, democratization, so to speak of of content marketing. Now we're seeing that with writing, we're seeing that with Twitter threads, we're seeing that with video content, we're kind of seeing that across the board. And so, yeah, like I kind of want to dive into that just around, you know, the topic that we're talking about today is, is all around distribution tactics. 
you kind of have a polarizing take on distribution. And I'd love for you to kind of unpack that. Yeah, I to your point, I think distribution is one of the hard problems of content marketing for exactly that. When you democratize something, you make it very easy for lots of people to get okay results. And if anything, you make it harder to get really, really good results because mm -hmm. everyone's suddenly doing the thing that maybe only a handful of people were doing in the past. Yeah. I think lots of rigor has been applied to lots of parts of content marketing in terms of like writing and keyword research and that sort of thing. And distribution is one of those areas that hasn't had the same rigor applied to it. And there is a lot of bad advice and a lot of advice that skirts around the actual hard part of it. Mm -hmm. So I think you saw that uh, slightly spicy like LinkedIn post I did where I was saying like, if you've got one of these thousand checklist items for content yep. distribution probably get rid of it. Don't worry about it. It's not going to serve you very well. Yep. And I still stand by that because the reason those checklists are so popular is because they promise to reduce something that is very hard down to something that is very simple. Yeah. Like we all like binary checklist items. We all like going through and saying, hey, yeah, I posted this to those 25 different forums or whatever. But the act of doing that, for one, it's probably not going to have a very big impact. You know, some of these, they always reference places like growth hackers and sites like that, which were active about 10 years ago. And, you know, today they're just basically ghost towns. Even if you do go through that checklist, you're probably going to just wind people up because you're, every article you publish every week, you're posting to 50 different channels in a complete monologue and you're not making time to solicit interaction and feedback. Mm. And there are so many different types of content as well, as you yeah. mentioned. There is no one-size-fits-all checklist for that type of content. Yeah. If you try and distribute an organic search-targeted blog post and like a thought leadership blog post in the same way, that's a recipe for both of those experiences to suck for anyone that encounters them. You know, most SEO blog posts are incredibly situationally useful. They're designed to solve a problem that a person has at a particular point in time. Yeah. Why would you post that to social media? Like, what? I don't understand the logic behind that. Yeah. You know what? One thing I was just thinking about as you were talking through that is, yes, we all love that binary checklist of, you know, everyone has that nice Notion doc where it's like, uh-huh, here I am, like checking off my to-dos, Notion, whatever other tool you use. It still takes a lot of time to do it well. I think that's something where... You know, we've had Ross Simmons on, on the podcast before, and, and he's all about create once, distribute forever. And like, I generally align with that sentiment, like, and basically the, the overarching sentiment that really that I'm down with is you need to put investment into distribution, creating something that's good using air quotes here, and then posting it once and like never thinking about it again. That's a great way to light money on fire, basically from a content marketing perspective. So if you're cold and need to stay warm and like need to start a fire, do that. But doing distribution well takes a ton of time and it is an investment. And I think it's often an afterthought. I would say marketing, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, but it still happens today, probably where it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to take our budget for the sake of easy numbers, hundred grand, we're going to spend 90 grand producing the thing and then 10 grand to put it some Facebook ads behind it. And like, that's kind of it when, you know, what probably needs to be happening is you need to spend maybe 50 grand or 40 grand producing it. And then that other 50 or 60 grand, how can we distribute this? Whether it's some of that budget is going to a co-creator, maybe an influencer or ad budget to go to paid search or paid social or whatever those things are. Maybe it's a placement somewhere. What's kind of your take on, on all that? I completely agree with the ethos behind that. You know, I think most organizations have indexed really heavily on content creation and I completely agree they don't focus on actually getting that out into the world. Mm -hmm. And you end up with companies that have these vast libraries of content that 
they don't know what they published last year. No one yeah. else knows what published. It just kind of languishes there despite being really good and really interesting. Yeah. The only issue I take with that kind of general concept is that it's very easy to spend a lot of time on content distribution tactics that feel useful and have no impact whatsoever. Mm. You do have to be very, very selective. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Pareto principle in like everything I do. And the first thing I try and do with any problem is work out what is like the one or two things I should be doing that if I could only do one or two things, they would be the ones that have the highest impact. Yeah. And you know what? It's not posting it to 50 forums or growth hackers or yeah. tweeting about it. You know, it's making a list of the biggest industry newsletters in my industry. It's building relationships with the people that curate that content. And it's sending them an email every couple of weeks when I publish something that I'm particularly proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely higher leverage ways we can get content out into the world. And the influencers yeah. is another great point as well. Yeah. Where can you bring other people with established audiences into the content creation process? Yeah. Give them an incentive to share it for themselves, not for your benefit. Mm-hmm. And through doing so, you know, expose your brand, your ideas to a brand new audience in the process. I mean, to get very meta, that's literally what we're doing right now. Yeah. And like, this, I love podcasts. Actually. This, this kind of mutual <laughs> serendipity between the host and the guest. That is this wonderful medium. It's kind of what guest blogging used to be 10 years ago when it was like an emergent thing. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. One other thing I just want to touch on that, that you just said was, you know, this idea of instead of going out and ha- having a checklist of like 50 different things to do, you said, yeah, what are the two or three things that I can do really well? And what I noticed that you kind of focused on is like, you looked before you leaped. You didn't just grab things off the shelf. Oh, this is easy. I can go post to 20 Slack groups and, you know, these Facebook groups and like this sort of thing. You were like, ah, who, who are the biggest, where is that audience spending time? What type of content are they consuming? Like all these types of things. And I mean, you know, maybe I'm biased like this because I own a research company, but I think about when I worked on the, the brand side of things, this concept of looking before you leap, it just seems so obvious. Hey, if we're going to spend a bunch of time and a bunch of effort and a bunch of the company's resources on this, how can we ensure that we're being as efficient and effective as possible, that we're going to give ourselves a chance at getting great ROI? And the way that we were, we thought about that was like, can we look before we leave, whether that's channel selection, whether that's content ideation, whether that's distribution tactics, like all these different things. And I think like we have the luxury as marketers to be able to see all that because we're digital marketers in 2022 and that's the world we live in. But yeah, like what's kind of your take on that research side of things? I obviously have a thing behind me just over my shoulder that says research guide strategy. We're super bullish on this. How does that land with you? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I wish I had had that epiphany when I was a younger marketer because I definitely (laughs) didn't. And like a lot of the ways I've come to these opinions is through doing the stuff that I think doesn't work anymore. Like I remember my my, the agency I co-founded, I spent a bunch of time with my big old checklist of places to post stuff to. And I do that for every blog post. And it took a little while, but you get a feedback loop and you realize that this is not doing the thing you hoped it would do. Yeah, And you have to be willing to confront that and go, okay, what should I do instead? Mm-hmm. And you know, the way I normally find out is to look at the companies that I admire that are doing it well. Yep. If you can think of a marketer that inspires you, well, they're probably doing distribution well because unless you're like frequenting the dark corners of the internet, they've probably found you through yep. some kind of distribution method. So what has worked for them? What are the strategies that work for them? So many platforms make this very easy to do it. I, I love Twitter because of the advanced search operators. You can totally. find anyone on there. You can search for their most popular content, the formats, the topics that resonate with people. And you can think, hey, what is my version of that? Yeah. 
as you say, the data is there if you go looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's one of those things where, to your point, you kind of just said, hey, I've had to touch the stove year over year and get burned a lot to learn that. And I always kind of think I'm like, you don't have to touch the stove. You, there is a thermometer gun that you can point at it to be like, oh, that's hot or, oh, that's cold. And, you know, which one is kind of safer to the touch? So I completely empathize with that. I want to dive a little bit deeper into you had a LinkedIn post all around something you called the distribution flywheel. And there was a big piece of that that kind of focused a lot on community and building an audience. And so as we kind of talk through like what that model is, why is community and audience kind of core pillars that you chose for when building this model? So like the impetus behind this is basically the distribution is hard and yeah. I wanted to find a way to try and solve that problem for people. And thinking through this, the thing that we want, the thing that brands want or individual content creators want is an audience. We want people that know us, that care about our ideas, yeah. are willing to engage with us and maybe at some point in the future will give us money. Like That's the desired end state. Yeah. And the hard part about that is building that audience from zero. When you are a nobody, nobody knows who the hell you are getting to that point of any any kind of people following you whatsoever seems impossible. And mm -hmm. there's not much written about it. A lot of the advice on distribution focuses on companies that already have established brands. There's like a little bit of a gap in the discourse from my experience. Yeah. So this was just a, a product of reflection of the things that have worked for me that I've seen other people do. And if you want to build an audience, the best place to start with that is a community, which is essentially a bunch of existing people that already hang out and already have shared interests that align with the thing that you care about and talk about. So that has to be the fastest, most efficient way to build your audience. You you go where they already are. You hang out with them. You become a sincere participant of that community. You make the community richer as a result of your engagement. And as a kind of serendipitous byproduct of that, you also give people incentive to engage with you outside the platform as well, maybe on your, your social accounts or in your mailing list or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, this was like just a bit of an epiphany for me because I've always approached this problem with my marketing hat on. And I think yep. putting the marketing hat on is what ruins this for a lot of people <laughs> because people don't go on Twitter or Discord or Slack to be marketed to. They go there to learn and to have a good time and to be entertained. And yep. I think you have to embrace that and get on board with that before you can put the marketing hat on and try and work out how you can get some value out of that yourself. Absolutely. I think about my time working working on the brand side of things, what is the type of content that we were creating and what was the purpose behind it? So I'll give an example. Back in the day, I worked as a video editor at Arterix, the outdoor company. Really awesome rain jackets for anybody listening out there. Go check out Arterix. But so I was working as a video editor and God, how old was I? 21 or something, 21, 22. So when I got the job, I was really excited because, yeah, I'm going to be editing brand videos and product videos, but I'm also going to get to edit, you know, the extreme sports like climbing this epic peak or skiing down this thing. One day, the head of customer care comes to us and says, hey, I have an idea for a video. And I'm like, OK. And he's like, we're going to film a video about how to wash your Gore-Tex jacket. And at the time, I was like, boring, <laughs> like, don't care. So we go, we film this video, um, we edit the video and it goes onto YouTube and me being the 21 year old idiot that I was, you know, after a week or two, it had done like 2000 views. I can't believe we spent like a decent chunk of money and time creating this thing. The joke's on me because now it's their second highest viewed YouTube video of all time. <laughs> it's done well into the millions of views. 
And why he wanted to do it is he's like that one of the number one, one of the, one of the top inquiries that we get from a customer care perspective is how do you wash your Gore-Tex jacket? So instead of his people writing out this long thing, they literally were able to just respond with a YouTube link, which had a four minute video of like how to do it. Now, where I'm going with all this is number one, I'm stupid and should have realized that that was a good marketing play. But number two, I would have never thought that that was content marketing back then. I, I didn't really realize that. And this idea of like, yes, marketing can be used to entertain and inspire, but it can also be used to educate and add value and not with this like direct sell. And so that was something that I was just so, so surprised where, you know, and I, I think someone, someone said it to me back then at the time is it's like, regardless of if that person but has it hasn't an Arteryx jacket or not? They could have a North Face jacket. I don't care if it's made out of Gore-Tex. They are going to see this and they are going to get value from it, which leaves them with a positive experience of our brand. For us, that's a win. It might not be directly tied to, oh, we did this thing and a dollar came in, but that kind of concept as a whole. And so I think about that, like later on in my career, I ended up working at Red Bull. We did the same thing where it's like, whether you were buying the can, the energy drink or not, you were going to have a really good time with our brand, you were going to be inspired, you were going to be entertained, you might learn something like all those different things. And to your point, I think when we talk about like audience and community, that's something that is so often overlooked because of this pendulum in marketing with performance and brand. And we've almost kind of like gone to like every dollar spent in marketing needs to be a dollar or more coming back into the business. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I absolutely love that. That was pretty much the most like pithy and concise definition of like brand marketing I've come up with ever. It's amazing. But yeah, I actually I published an article about this topic, I think, yesterday. Okay. Basically the idea that, you know, we've become very data driven and mm. we have the expectation that, you know, you spend money, you see more money come out of it, and every marketing tactic should have some kind of data point associated with it that we can watch go up. Mm -hmm. And the thing we forget is that the best data at our disposal in terms of like you know, page views and engagement and time on page is generally just a proxy for the stuff that really matters, which is whether people know about us and whether they think about us more and whether they trust us and whether they develop that process of brand affinity. Yeah. And we generally hope that the data correlates with those things. And sometimes it does, like more mm -hmm. page views probably does mean more people will buy from you. But there's a lot of unintended consequence hidden by those metrics. Like mm -hmm. a lot of the things you can do to drive up a bunch of page views can just really piss people off. <laughs> Same with like gated content, you know, you may feel great at all the conversions you've got. Oh, yeah. And what about the bad vibes you get when somebody, you know, reluctantly sighs as they fill out their contact details and then they open up that PDF and you know what? It's the same as any other blog post they could have read anywhere. Yeah. That's generally not reflected in the data we have most readily available to. It yeah. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That is still out there. That is still a consequence of what we've done. Mm -hmm. so I, yeah, I love this is why I like brand marketing. I think more people are switching on to the idea that it's okay just to like deliver good experiences to people and not always be able to match it one for one with a concrete data point mm -hmm. because the payoff will come in other ways in other forms of data down the line. Yeah. Hey, it's Charlie here, and I hope that you're enjoying the episode so far. If you are, I want to encourage you to check out the Right Metric Insight Library. It's a free library of data-backed research that we've put together to help strategists just like you build your digital strategy based on facts and not assumptions. It's full of strategy teardowns and examples from fast-growing brands that have already helped thousands of marketers identify content opportunities, focus on the right white space channels, improve their media strategies, and benchmark against competitors. So if you want to set up a free account, 
you can head to writemetric.co slash insight library, or just look for a link in the show notes, wherever you're watching or listening to this. So with that, I want to thank you again for tuning in and I'll let you get back to the episode. Well, I, I think it's so funny just thinking through like, oh, what's the last time I put in an, my contact information to get a piece of content and I have a burner email account. So I'm like, exactly great. Yeah. Like, and guess what? Like, I'm maybe not that sophisticated. There's a good chance that a lot of other people have burner email accounts too, you know? So I'm kind of like, what is the point? Yeah, but I, exactly that. I, I, I think the the one thing that I would say about the the data-driven piece, I feel like to your point, like like I said earlier on, it's 2022 as marketers, we're very lucky to have access to the amount of data points and information. That said, I think we've kind of been, we've learned this bad habit from performance marketing that is like X has to equal 10. And if it does not equal 10, we're not doing it. Whereas I kind of go more to this phrase of like data informed. So with content insights, right? Like there's so many data points that we can look at from a content perspective that shouldn't dictate yes or no, if we should make content, it's more so, Hey, we know that we're going to make content. Let's create something that we know has a good chance to reach the type of audience that we want to try and reach. So it doesn't have to be like this one specific data point. And like, like I said, X equals 10, but it can be like, Hey, we know that this audience spends time on these channels and within those channels, these are the top performing content topics, themes, formats, buckets, et cetera. And then from there, now that we know that as marketers, we can then take, hey, here's what the audience and how they behave. Here's kind of where we're trying to go as a business. What are some things that we can pull together to create this peanut butter and chocolate relationship and then put something out into the world? Whereas I feel like a lot of marketers kind of get hung up on like data equals the exact answer. And without that exact answer, I cannot move ahead. So what's your take on that? Well, you really reminded me actually a parallel to this was I studied economics at university and the mantra is like economics is a hard science. It is yeah. up there with physics almost, you know? Yeah. And my process of going through it, you realize it is a soft science. It's basically sociology and psychology with a bit more data rigor involved. So it's yeah. that kind of it's data informed. Yes. It's a useful, valid thing to do. Mm -hmm. but it's not a hard science. You don't have this kind of like one-to-one -one mapping of like inputs and outputs. But I think that's okay. You know, it's a nuanced take and it's something I didn't get when I was a bit younger and you have to have a bit of confidence within an organization to say like data is good up to a point and, you know, understand that conversation. But yeah, I think you're totally right. I love data informed instead of just wrote and data driven. I, I feel like, yeah, again, markers are in everything. It's like, oh my God, the double D <laughs> data driven, like here we go. And we've like latched onto that. And I think for me, at least I always kind of get people like, oh, you know, you as a data guy, I'm like, I'm a marketing guy who wants to make more informed decisions. And so like data happens to be one of those ways. But also if you've worked at a brand for 20 years or at an industry for 20 years, like there's a lot of gut and intuition that you have too, and you need both. So I don't know, it's always interesting to like kind of talk about that. Well, yeah, that's a great point. And I think to that point as well, qualitative data is still data, isn't it? That's something we, we always treat it as like a second class citizen, but yeah. Like the way we know our marketing is working at animals is not historically from quantitative data. It's from sales conversations and the kind of general public sentiment and people emailing us all stuff, which is really hard to talk about in, you know, in slideshow format with like graphs with yeah. arrows going up, but it's still incredibly value and incredibly informative. And even today there are tools, like imagine your company's great for this, but we use Gong, you know, ways of like aggregating what were individual qualitative data points and making them a little bit more quantitative and viewing yep. them at a slightly like broader macro scale. Yep. 
Um, that's a yeah, hugely wonderful thing to do. Like gut and intuition is still a form of data, I think. Yeah. The phrase that we've used internally, and I actually stole this from a guy named Stefan Olander. That he's Stefan Olander is known as like Mr. Nike Plus. So he was at Nike for 25 years. He was the guy who kind of led Nike Plus. And we ended up speaking at the same conference together. And he kind of talked about this phrase where I was like, oh my God, I'm stealing this called informed intuition. So how are you taking that data points, whether it's quantitative, qualitative, and then not kicking out the intuition that you have from working on a business or on a brand or in a specific industry. And I was like, aha, chef kiss, I'm stealing the shit out of that. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah, I probably will also steal that in some form. Well. Steal away. <laughs> I, I want to I wanna talk about a LinkedIn post, and I'm actually going to quote you. I, I have it up. And so this is a post you did about a month ago, and you said, if you're a content marketer and think that AI isn't going to impact your job very soon, dot, 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 you haven't been paying attention. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess lots of, I've been thinking about this so much. This is like the thing that's taken up all of my headspace. But I think as an industry, like we've heard that AI is going to change everything many, many, many times. And we haven't seen much of a, a payoff and much of like, much of that coming. It's to been a head big. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the only reason I care so much about this is because this is the first time that AI has intersected with a thing that I know a lot about and I care a lot about, which is writing and the application of writing through marketing. And I got fairly early access to GPT-3. We got access to like the private beta. And there are very few experiences in my life which have like just changed how I think about something. And well, there are lots of those, but this was like a big one. This was like yeah. a huge paradigm shifting moment. I basically, I took a the opening chapter from the book I was writing at the time, just like a bit of um, you know, fiction. And I put it into the AI and I asked it to write a few paragraphs. And what it wrote was, like fantastic, like really, really good, really beautifully written, interesting concepts and ideas that made me think, oh, I, you know, I hadn't done that myself, but maybe I could take it that direction. Yeah. And that was like the simplest, you know, most naive interaction with the software. And it's become more and more nuanced as companies are adding front ends to it and ways to interact with it and ways to shape it and bound it towards formats that are useful for marketing. Mm -hmm. I just, this stuff is magic and it can do a thing that I thought only humans could do. Yeah. And I think a lot of marketers, understandably so, we're reluctant to admit that. Yeah. We don't want it to be the case. It's scary. I totally feel that. But that doesn't change the reality that lots and lots of companies are already using this to do the things that were once the reserve of just people. Yeah, it's it's interesting. But I mean, between that, between Dolly with image stuff, insanity, right? Like just some of the stuff is like wild. I've also seen, there's been a few other like recent examples of, you know, there's sure there's writing tools. I think there's like a Twitter thread tool now that'll do this, right? Where it's like, take this and turn it into a Twitter thread. And to your point where you're like five years ago, we would have been like, yeah, whatever. It's spitting out this kind of shitty English that doesn't really make sense. There's a ton of typos, but now you're like, whoa, it matches my tone of voice or that person's tone of voice. And it's actually, whether it's flow, sentence structure, punctuation, language, like you name it, it's kind of all there. One thing that I thought was interesting, I've kind of like played around with this, and this is more on a personal level, is one of the tools I've I've messed around with was called, I think it's called Jasper. It used to be called Jarvis. Now it's called Jasper. And I've almost kind of used it in the past to just come up with topic ideas or kind of like edit in real time. So let's say I have an idea for a topic. So I'm like, you know, spit it into the, the AI program. And then it's like, Okay, if this is the title of it, come up with three kind of main themes that I want to cover with this. And it would come up with three. And I'm like, don't like those. And I would like query it again, query it again, query it again. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I actually do like those. And I have something to say about those. You would kind of choose those. 
And then it's like, cool, a paragraph or two or three or whatever about this one thing. And again, it's kind of like you're almost editing in real time. So it's instead of me staring at a blank page and like full disclosure, I am an awful writer, which is why we're on a <laughs> podcast so I can speak instead of write. But I just thought it was fascinating where it's like for me to output something like that would take me a really long time to write it from a blank page. But having these kind of prompts and being able to kind of edit in the, on the fly was so liberating for me. And I was still able to kind of weave in my experiences. So, you know, like that Arteryx example that I just gave, like I could write that in if I was talking about content marketing. And then it would like take it in a direction that I didn't even really think about where I'm like, oh yeah, that actually does make a lot of sense. And so on one hand, selfishly, I get really excited about that. On the other hand, you got to wonder, it's like, what does that mean for content marketers? What does that mean for us as consumers as like the information that we're reading? Like, are we just going to get to a point where it's like, yeah, you know what? A lot of this is done by AI and AI actually does a better job of creating the content that we want to read because they know so much about us. So we described there, I think, is the like ideal state and use case of this technology. It's where skilled human people use it as a kind of creative sparring partner yeah. and a way to like blast through some of the creative roadblocks that we typically have. Because, you know, no matter how great you are at writing or thinking, or whatever, we all have the limitations and our own biases. And AI is something that can just kind of blast through that. It's almost like a really advanced version of the rubber duck, you know, programmers that famously like, talk to you when they're debugging or whatever. Yeah. I think that's great. And that's a probably a really good access point and quite like a heartening way to think about this. But I do also think there is going to be like a bad side to it as well, because obviously if you put a skilled human and you give them a great tool, they generally make something that looks amazing. If you take an unskilled human and give them that same tool, they probably end up, maybe they'll cut a finger off, there'll be blood everywhere. It's like a disaster for everyone. Yeah. And these tools, this is like the ultimate democratization of this technology. You can freemium software or like 50 bucks a month to access these tools. And you can churn out hundreds of articles a month if you mm -hmm. want to do that. Thousands if you're really determined to do it. And while a lot of those people doing that will have skill and judgment and will care about the things they make, I think a lot of people won't. And as I said, I came from like the black hat world of SEO where people care largely about, you know, page views in the aggregate. How can we bump this up as quickly as possible before the next algorithm update? Yeah. And people will use that technology in that way as well. Yeah. But I think we do have to think about the kind of potential negative consequences of this and where we want to position ourselves yeah. in opposition to that. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a tool and every business out there, I think, in my opinion, needs to be looking at this because with the right skilled people driving the tool, driving the machine, it can be super, super powerful and it can, it could increase output if that was part of the strategy. It could increase length, quality, linking different ideas together. Like there's so many things that kind of come with it. And yeah, I don't know. As soon as, as soon as I saw that LinkedIn post from you, I was like, Yup, I completely agree with this. I do think that this is something that people are kind of sleeping on right now. And, and obviously it's still early. We know that it's it's not as easy. Like even when I signed up for Jasper or Jarvis or whatever that AI tool is called, I probably spent four hours messing around with it. You know, at first got some like really crappy things kind of spat out and you're learning how to use their bracketing system to like query it to kind of get what you want. And they also say when you start using it, the more you use it, the better it's going to be, right? Because it needs to understand, like, how do you think? How do you write the inputs? And then what are the outputs that you're accepting based on those inputs? Like, there's all these kind of things, but I'm super bullish on this. I just think it is it is the future, right? Like, if content marketing is as competitive as it is and, like, earning human attention <laughs> takes a ton of time to create something that is going to give you a chance of earning someone's attention, 
you got to gotta be using everything around you to try and give yourself an opportunity to be successful. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I don't even think it's limited to content as well. I think about our company and people writing MSAs and SOWs every day, stuff that needs to be changed a little bit, but is largely the same. I mean, AI could do that. Yep. Sales emails, cold emails, prospecting, you know, yep. the possibilities for this stuff, I think are pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah I feel like we, you and I could just do a separate episode on AI. So maybe maybe we do that in a few in a few months. But outside of AI, what are you most excited about when it comes to content marketing? Like, you know, you've been in it a long time. You've seen a lot of stuff. You obviously get to do some amazing work with different brands through animals. You're sitting around a ton of smart people all day, every day, living and breathing this. What gets you fired up? What gets you excited? I think the thing I'm most excited about is just, I feel like there's a growing tolerance of and hunger for content that is satisfying to create an interesting just from a pure objective like consumption viewpoint we're just people are more willing to make stuff that is fun and interesting in service of content marketing without having to constrain it within the bounds of or oh, it has to rank for this keyword or it has to get x you know number of page views mm-hmm. um, and we've kind of we talked a bit about this today but like basically media marketing i think is becoming more tolerable to people yeah i think that's really exciting because the kind of classic cognitive cognitive dissonance of what I've had to do for a living is that I enjoy writing and I have to write things that are probably not that much fun. I probably wouldn't choose to do if I was doing it just for fun. And I have yeah. to kind of reconcile those two. Yep. I think we're reaching a point where that is becoming less and less the case. Some industries, people have been doing SEO for decades. There's not that much low-hanging fruit left. So they're thinking, hey, what is the next frontier of this? And it is just entertaining people. It's raising awareness at a much earlier stage of the buying process. And that unlocks things like one of our customers, 360 Learning. They did this amazing docu-series called Onboarding Joey, where they brought Joey on as their head of content, and they filmed the process of onboarding her and the decisions she made and all that kind of thing. And they released it as a, a video series. Wow. That's the kind of thing I could never imagine having that conversation with like an executive five, 10 years ago. They just think I was absolutely mad. Yeah. And more and more companies are willing to do that. And yeah, that's so much fun for people that make content. And I want to flip that question. What are the things in content marketing that just grind your gears or annoy you or you're tired of it? Like, I, you know, I feel like there's a lot of things that that we could dive into that could be a whole nother talk show. But yeah, is there anything that comes to mind where you're like, why is this still a thing? Or like, why do people do this? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, like people have been writing about content marketing for a very, very, very long time at this point. Like we're mm-hmm. basically the first industry to clock onto it because that's what we sold. Yeah. And I still see a lot of people solving the same old problems and thinking about the same old problems in the same way that they always have. Yeah. And there just seems to have been no development in the discourse whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, content distribution is probably one of the prime examples of this. Like the world of today, the places people interact with, the ways they hang out, the, the nature of social interaction online is so different from what it was 10 years ago. And yet people are still trying to distribute content with that old playbook mm-hmm. without taking the time to sit down and think like from first principles, who do I want to reach? Where do they hang out today? What do they care about? Is there yeah. a way I can like add myself into that conversation? Yeah. Cause um, when you do anything for 10 years, you do, I think get, there's a tendency to get a bit jaded about like everything that happens within it. And yeah. um, I'm just very tired of people trying to solve the same problems over and over again, when there are much more interesting things to be thinking about. Yeah. And I guess trying to apply the same solution, like, oh, we've always done it this way. That's like my biggest pet peeve is, you know, to your, to your point, like going back to basics. And I think a lot of brands to your point, you know, they've been working on something for 10 years. 
But then when you talk to them and you're like, what do you know about your audience? Where do they hang out? What do they consume? How do they consume it? How have the competitors in your space effectively reached them? How have the tactics evolved over time? Like all those different things. And I think sometimes organizations will be like, you know what, we're we figured that stuff out. And it's like, you actually haven't because the fact that we're having this conversation right now means that you haven't just politely, like you're obviously having a conversation for a reason, whether it's with animals, whether it's with us, whether it's with, you know, a consultant or, you know, bringing in a new, a new internal stakeholder. So I feel like going back to those basics on a regular basis where it's like, what are we, where, maybe not what are we trying to accomplish? Like, hopefully they kind of have their business and marketing objectives kind of set, but more so like, where are they? All those different things that I listed. And that's something that I constantly find myself running into where it seems like relatively like basic low hanging fruit stuff. And I think some marketers would get frustrated by that, but it's so important because, you know, you said a decade ago, I'm like, even five years ago, things have changed. Even two years ago, things have changed. Yeah. As we start to wind down the episode here, I always ask these last three questions. So these are kind of rapid fire. If you want to kind of expand more, you can. So are there any brands whose marketing you admire? Like if you, I'll give mine, Apple can do no wrong. They could put out cardboard and I would pay a ton of money for it, <laughs> um, which which is very bad for my bank account. But yeah, who's kind of at the top of your list where, of brands that whose marketing you admire? I'm a big fan. Well, most recently, actually, I've been really interested in following ProfitWell. So this is a company, I've, I've followed them for years and years and years. I actually, yep. some of the first content I ever created was designed to unseat their rankings and compete with them for keywords. And we're talking like literally 12 years ago. Yeah. One of the things they did very early, Patrick Campbell, their um, company founder, they were willing to invest in media content before people were even thinking about it way ahead of the curve. So like really polished, high production value, like video shows and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I just love them because they're really early to that. And they've also, Patrick has just had like a $200 million exit and been bought out by Paddle and yeah. gone and joined that company. So I just, I love the content they create. I love the kind of uh, strategic element where he was basically like, it's a small market, Lots of people are already doing SEO, so we're just going to do the major marketing thing. Like, I love that. And to see a payoff from it in such a demonstrable way is amazing. Yeah. Big fan of Podia as well. Yeah. Uh, like course creator software. I just love everything they do, like Benjamin over there as well. They did like a creator fellowship where they were basically like an interactive thing where you could nominate people for their fellowship. And just this wonderful use of community and kind of like two-way marketing where people nominate you and you can reward them and your brand is the thing that gets talked about as a you know, happy accident or as a result of that. Yeah, maybe lastly, Wistia as well. Yeah, uh, They put out some content, which again is like absolutely mad. I've no idea how you ever justify it. Like a, a cartoon series called, um, I think it's like Gear Squad versus Dr. Boring. <laughs> And like, it's just, it's nice to have examples to point to of content that is like fun to consume and you know, it's probably fun to make as well. And yeah. ostensibly it is doing something positive for their business as well. For sure. Okay. Next question here. How do you stay up to date on business and marketing? Who are you following? What are you reading? Who are you listening to? I'm not a big fan of reading about business or marketing in the general sense. I, um, I'm kind of a believer that like the most interesting ideas, the ones that are least tapped are the ones that come from other kind of tangentially related disciplines. So I read a lot from typically really nerdy ICs at like big tech companies or academics or anyone that spent like 20 years doing something incredibly nerdy and then writes about it. I love that. Yeah. Um, so like engineers like Dan Liu or Eugene Wei, they write about like, you know, growth models and how their companies function or, yeah, yeah I'm really nerdy into like, um, I follow a lot of content about 
like academic writing and how to use tools like Obsidian and Rome Research and Knowledge Graphs and all this stuff that's kind of esoteric and you know not that helpful in its own right, but it gives you frameworks that you can then apply into content marketing, which I yeah. think is interesting and novel. Yeah. And yeah, in terms of a few people in content, I do follow like Dr. Fio Deceto. She's an um, active campaign now, but one of the smartest, most wonderful writers. She does this amazing newsletter called Content Folks. And I mentioned uh, Benjamin Elias at um, Podia, but he has a wonderful newsletter called Diamond Pencils as well. Yeah. Just, you know, smart individual contributors at companies that want to share their experience. I just, that's the content I love. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you brought up the like Obsidian Rome research thing. I've started to kind of dive into like building a second brain type of oh, thing. And it's a, it's a whole wormhole, that, isn't it? <laughs> that, that's another talk show for you and I completely because I feel like we could go down the rabbit hole. So last question, I'm sure there's going to be tons of questions from people listening to this. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of you online? So in terms of like the things I make, uh, basically animals blog is the best place for that I send out a newsletter every week or two i spend a lot of time on twitter and obviously you've been following the stuff i show on linkedin as well yeah i enjoy that i've historically i've been the kind of person that just writes stuff and puts it into the ether and doesn't want to like talk about it or like have conversations and i've come out of my shell and twitter and linkedin have been so good for that and i've been learning a lot from people asking questions and challenging my ideas so yeah i'd love for people to do that on social media <laughs> Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for the time. We'll definitely have you back for another episode in the future, probably to talk about all things AI, maybe building a second brain. I don't know. There's so <laughs> many different ideas. So yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Charlie. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.